Now please follow along as I read John chapter 7, verses 1 through 13, today's message, not a popularity contest. Now as I read this text, as we move forward in our study in the Gospel according to John, reading from the English Standard Version, I'm going to make a few comments here and there on a few items that I'm not going to focus on in today's sermon, but either in a future teaching or maybe a podcast, uh, requires some extra discussion because there's some significant things going on in this text. And as I said, at the very beginning of this study, relating to the whole issue of who God's people are and the change, the further development of God's plan to save his people and establish his kingdom. So now we read here, after this, after all the things that we saw going before in chapter 6, especially as Jesus' disciples, some of them quit following him. After that, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now let's stop right here. And this is one of these places where I want to do that. Because it says here plainly, the Jews were seeking to kill him. This is one of the challenges we face in this study is how various terms and phrases are used, and although it's not spelled out directly, like, you know, uh, so somebody who's five years old could understand it, it's not meant to be, because we can figure these things out on our own, based on God's divine revelation. Obviously, it doesn't mean all the Jews were seeking to kill him, because Jesus' followers were all, quote, Jews. Now, some people have sought to get around the clear meaning of this text. You'll find this in some of the more recent, newer translations. I'll even say some of the more woke translations. They'll change that term to, now the Judeans were seeking to kill him. Now, they have reasons for doing that, but they're silly, frankly. But even if you change it and understand it's the Judeans, that doesn't mean all the Judeans were seeking to kill him either. There is something else going on here where the, the, there's a, a major, if not subtle, change in the meaning of the term Jew or Jews that has taken place. That will be the focus, an important one in a future study. Verse 2, Now the Jews' feast of, booths, feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the work you are doing. Notice it says, so his brothers told him this. Verse 4, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers, verse 5, not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. In other words, I am divine, you are human. My time is different than your time. He says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. What in the world does that mean? How, how can he say the world could, uh, does not hate them or cannot hate them? Because what he means by that, again, is this distinction between who he is and his divine nature versus who they are. They are of humanity. They are of Adam's fallen race. So the world will not hate them like it hates Christ Jesus. Verse 8, you go up to the feast. I'm not going to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up. Now, let's remember, when you go up, when you go to Jerusalem, you go up. Because Jerusalem, no matter which direction you approach it, is on a hill. So you're, you're always going up to Jerusalem, whether you come from north, south, east, or west. Then he also went up, not publicly, but in private, 
The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? Now, we assume because they wanted to do away with him. And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. And I remind you what I said at the beginning. There's something going on there with this term Jew and Jews that we'll get into at another time very soon. So chapter 6 of John's gospel ended with many of Jesus' followers refusing to walk with him anymore. Now here in chapter 7 we're told that Jesus, however, continued to walk among them. And now John makes it clear that Jesus was in no hurry to go up to Jerusalem The leaders of the Jews were planning to kill him, but he would not allow himself to be killed until the appointed day and time. And so, the Lord did continue to walk among those people when he could have chosen to walk in numerous other places besides Galilee or Jerusalem, but he didn't. We know from the rest of the teachings of the New Testament that this was the last time that he would walk in Galilee before his murder, before his crucifixion. Now, his teachings have been rejected by many. He's been insulted and reviled, and yet he continues to walk among them. Here is a marvelous picture, a marvelous example, friends, of the grace of God. The Lord walks among sinners, continually offering himself to them, even in the face of their sin and rejection. God has from the beginning demonstrated his mercy and grace to those who deserved it, not at all. Here in the the book of Genesis, uh, in the days of paradise before the entrance of sin into the world, we know that it was our Heavenly Father's custom to walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day of the garden. But even when they had sinned, he continued to come to them even though they did not want to walk with him. And so... As we look further at these verses of John 7, 1 to 13, I want to suggest that we consider the following three main points about what we would take away from this for ourselves. First of all, we learn something here about the significant nature of unbelief in human beings, or we could say the unbelief of human nature. Look again at verse 5. For his brothers did not believe in him. So we see that even Jesus' own blood relatives and his own brothers did not, at least at that point, believe in him. Let me just say, too, that there can be no doubt that that is who those men were. The Greek text is plainly evident that it means exactly what it says in English. Those men were the offspring of Joseph and Mary, and hence the brothers of Jesus. Now, I make that point to you because, as some of you know well, the Roman Catholic Church claims that the Virgin Mary never bore any other children than Jesus of Nazareth. Well, that is simply not true, of course. And this is now actually the second time that we have encountered the biblical evidence to show that Jesus indeed had blood brothers. We don't have to do it right now, but if you go back and look at John chapter 2, verse 12, his brothers are referred to there. So here is Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, a man totally harmless and blameless in life, and his own blood kin did not receive him as the Messiah. Of course, it's bad enough that the Jews are trying to kill him. But I think on some level it is far worse that his own brothers did not believe him. 
Those men, now we can presume at least, they were witnesses to most, if not all, of Jesus' miracles. They've heard most, if not all, of his teachings. And they're living in the company of the Son of God himself. And none of that was enough to make them believers. So then we can see that the mere possession of spiritual advantage is simply not enough to make somebody into a Christian. Now we know from what God's Word teaches us, even in the first chapter of John's Gospel, that without the intervention of God's giving life-giving Spirit, no one can or has the ability to come unto Christ. You know, you could take the worst murderer or killer on death row, You could dress him up in a nice suit. You could drive him to the most beautiful cathedral in town and sit there and make him listen to nothing but Christian music day after day. You could fill his room with Bibles and theology books. None of those things would make that man into a Christian. Jesus said that it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Now, all you who are here today who have unsaved friends and loved ones, We all would do well to take these words to heart. How often have we encouraged that spouse, that husband, that wife to come to church with us? How many times have you prayed for that son or daughter's salvation? How frequently have you witnessed to that unsaved neighbor of yours and every one of them persists in their unbelief and refusal to bow the knee to Christ Jesus? And very often... You know, in the face of those kind of circumstances, some of us get the false idea that it is somehow our fault that not everyone around us is converted as we are. And we blame ourselves because our family is worldly or unconverted. But here is Christ the Lord himself in all of his sinless glory and life-giving power, and even his own brothers did not believe in him. Such is the nature of unbelief. In human beings. You know, you may be the only Christian in your family today. You may be the only follower of Jesus within a hundred miles of where you live. But you can take comfort in this knowledge that your Savior knows quite well that feeling of loneliness, of isolation, of being the only one. He too has endured that trial. He knows what it's like to stand alone. All right, then, that's the first thing we want to take away from this. The second thing is, and it it hones in further on that first point, one of the main reasons many people will not accept Christ Jesus and his word. You know, if there's a general disposition to unbelief among human beings, there are specific causes or reasons that people say they won't believe. Look at verse 7. He tells them, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I tell it the evil things it does. This is from a more paraphrased translation. But it highlights the real meaning of the text. The world cannot hate, as I said earlier, those people because they don't do what Jesus does and they're not who he is. He tells them the evil things that they do. He's highlighting there one of the secrets of unbelief. He he refers to the thing that causes many people who, upon hearing the message of the kingdom, clench their fists in defiance. You know, one of the main reasons his message was rejected was because he taught the authority of God, we may say the sovereignty of God, the Father, over the lives and the destinies of men and nations. 
God is in control of everything that happens, and no man can come to him unless the Father grants that to him. And from that time, remember, many refused to follow him any further. Now, of course, there were others who simply upon hearing Jesus claim to be the Messiah of God, they would go no further with him. They simply could not believe that a carpenter's son from Nazareth would be the divine son of God. But one thing that really sent many of those people into a rage against him was his witness against the wickedness and the evil of their lives. And that fact was true for Jesus in his day. It's no less true for us today as followers of Jesus. Now, let's be clear. You know, it's easy enough to understand and see based on our own experience that if we speak out in the name of life, and biblical truth against, say, something like abortion or same-sex marriage. You know, those are the big-ticket issues, and we know that the world doesn't like that, the, 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 the culture of death that we live in. But, you know, there are other things that are far more significant, or at least just as much so, that hardly anyone ever talks about. I've mentioned this before on other occasions, but do you think that the Lord is any less concerned about your view of politics and government than he is about your view on abortion? If you think that, the only way you can get away with thinking that is thinking that God is not sovereign over all things, and that God's word doesn't speak to some areas of life as opposed to having authority over all of life. What I'm saying is, if we're dotting the I's and crossing the T's on the subject of abortion or pro-life or uh, traditional marriage between a man and a woman and all that, that's all well and good. But if we're failing in the other areas that we don't even think about, we may find that one day we are idol worshiping and God is very displeased with us, even though we think we're being holy and righteous because we got it right on abortion. Now, the fact is the cause of many people's dislike of the kingdom is the holiness of living that it demands in all areas of life. You know, if the church does nothing but teach abstract theological doctrine, uh, you know, few people are going to be offended by that. You know, we could, uh, and some churches do this, they host these fine concerts of music and chorales and singing, and people will flock to hear those things. But as soon as the church makes a public stand against the fashionable sins of the day, thousands will be offended. Sadly, there are many churches that have gone into the spirit of the age rather than remaining faithful to the spirit of Christ Jesus. And they do that in order to attract people. And so they water down the message of the kingdom. Reminds me of a story a, a prominent psychologist once told about a doctor, a friend of his. And he was telling him about a, a patient that he'd had uh, recently, an elderly man with a very peculiar problem. He said for about half a year, that elderly man would get up every morning and become violently nauseated. But he never felt any need to consult the doctor about it. But finally, that elderly man's family convinced him to go see the doctor. And when the doctor came into the exam room, he asked the man how he was. And the guy said, oh, I'm fine. I couldn't be better. Well, the doctor examined him and found him to be in reasonably good shape for his age. But the doctor had already been tipped off by the man's family about this problem. And so he finally just came right out and confronted him. He said, you know, I hear that you've been having a problem with nausea every morning. The elderly man looked at him with 
quite a surprise. And he said, well, yes, but doesn't everybody have that problem? And he was being serious. He wasn't joking. So the pagans of this world are like that elderly man. They have lived with their sins so long. They have become spiritually and morally sick. And they have been so since they were born. And so they cannot imagine that their wicked lives are a problem. You know, uh, many of us in this room, and by those, the voice of my voice hearing, uh, being heard by those by means of sermon audio, we scratch our heads today. You know, we see the bizarre, evil, disgusting, decadent, weird things that are taking place in our culture. You know, guys trying to turn themselves into women and vice versa. Uh, people marrying their pets and treating their pet and foregoing the having of children to have have dogs and cats instead. I mean, stuff that you couldn't even describe to people a hundred years ago and have them take you seriously. And we wonder, how can people be like this? Don't they understand there's something profoundly wrong here? Well, the fact is, they don't. And this is the reason. From birth, they have become so accustomed to their sins And the society has now presented them with a cycle of evil in all areas in terms of entertainment and news and especially in public education. And the churches, of course, have failed. And so people have no no boundary line. Why why should they feel bad about what they're doing? They're being reinforced on every side in the decadent culture that their behavior is perfectly, quote, normal. I mean, think about this. If you do a survey of people at random, you will find that almost there are almost as many people with beliefs about who Jesus was and what he stood for as there are people with those opinions. For example, some people say that Jesus was a great teacher of morality, sort of like Socrates. Uh, Others will argue that Jesus was, above all else, a revolutionary who was seeking to overturn the oppressive regime of his day and liberate women and the poor from tyranny and prejudice. Still others maintained that Jesus was a holy man, a magician, a guru, who taught a path to self-enlightenment and self-fulfillment. You see, all of those are convenient ways to avoid the obvious truths of who Jesus was and is. Now, the third and final thing here, it relates to what I just said, and it's that strange opinions about Christ are nothing new. It's nothing new that there are all these different thoughts about who Jesus was and is. They've been around from the beginning of his earthly ministry over 2,000 years ago. Look again at verses 11 and 12. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And notice there was much muttering about him among the people. Presumably, these were Jews. Some people said he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. That's chapter 7, 11 and 12. So when we read those words, I think it's appropriate for us to recall the words of the great prophet Simeon that we encounter in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. Joseph and Mary have brought Jesus to the temple, and Simeon, the old prophet, standing there, sees him, and the Lord reveals to him who this child is. And you remember what he said, Luke 2, 34 to 35. He said, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, he says to Mary, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So those words of Simeon 
were being fulfilled in the murmuring and the opinions regarding Jesus by the Jews at that feast. And we ought not to be surprised when we find that there is that same bickering and diversity of opinion about Jesus today. Our human nature is so corrupted by sin that the proclamation of God's divine word is a cause of division among men. And as long as there are people in this world, there are some who, when they hear the message of the kingdom, they will love Christ and follow him. Others will hate him and reject him. Some will believe and some will not. Time and again, when the kingdom is proclaimed, the words of Jesus in Matthew 10.34 are proven true. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but conflict, literally a sword. Now we can speculate for many hours about what other people may think or say about Jesus. And yes, it is of some interest to know the opinions of of other religious leaders, uh, what John MacArthur thinks, or R.C. Sproul, or, or maybe even the Pope, with regard to Christ and his work on this earth. But you see, none of that matters, because the real question with which we have to do is this. What do we think of Christ and his kingdom? We may indeed be hated by the people of this world, even as they hated the Lord Jesus, because our faith is a testimony against them and their lifestyle. But no matter how unpopular our stand and whether we face ridicule at work or at school or at home, when that great day comes, when we all will receive our just rewards, we will find out then, even if it may not be clear right now, that if we have chosen to stand for God's kingdom, then we have chosen wisely and we will have lost nothing but gained a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Let us pray.